Well, good evening, Elsie. Good evening. We've embarked on a collective adventure together, haven't we? Oh, yes. As a community, we're discovering the treasures within the book of Daniel. Perhaps no other book in the Bible has played a more pivotal role in the Gentile world than the book of Daniel. The work itself foretells Gentile history in advance, and it records its records of impact on the kingdoms of the world are quite extensive. Consider this first slide that Alexander the Great encountered the book of Daniel, and it shaped the way that he saw Jews. All right, so this is from Antiquities of the Jews by Josephus. And it says, And when the book of Daniel was showed him, Alexander the Great, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that himself was the person intended. And as he was then glad, he dismissed the multitude for the present, but the next day he called them to him and bade them ask what favors they pleased of him. Whereupon the high priest desired that they might enjoy the laws of their forefathers and might pay no tribute on the seventh year. He granted all they desired. Wow. And when they entreated him that he would permit the Jews in Babylon and Medea to enjoy their own laws also, he willingly promised to do hereafter what they desired. Now, as interesting as this is, it is our intention to experience this book as belonging to the Ketuvim. In other words, we seek to understand how this particular book informs the Jewish people on how to live faithfully within the historical context of their time. After understanding this principle, we will then be able to make pertinent and practical application to the lives of present-day believers in our own historical setting. So from the onset, we invited you into the corporate study and have been inundated by your questions and your observations, and we just want to say that they are appreciated. Now is a good time to remind you that our primary focus is not textual criticism or descending into endless debate about disputed chronologies. We will, of course, set forth our best assertions regarding the authenticity and reliability of the scriptural account on those subjects, but our primary emphasis is and will remain on the impact that this book has and continues to have on the generations that have engaged it. Are y'all with us tonight? Yes! yes. So even prior reading the first line of Daniel this evening. We think it might be important for you to engage with a question. It's designed to help us grasp a concept. When we read to you the quote from Josephus regarding Alexander the Great and his interactions with Daniel, what did you find most interesting about it? Was it that Alexander was presented with the book of Daniel? I mean, that's cool. room to yeah. 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 Is that interesting? Raise your hand if you yeah. thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yes. Or perhaps, if you didn't raise your hand, it was that Alexander understood himself to be the subject matter of the prophecy oh, in yeah. Daniel. Yeah. Come on, throw a hand yeah. up if that gets your attention. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Or was the most 
striking detail that the only request of the Jews living under the dominion of the Gentile rulers was that they be allowed to faithfully follow the Tanakh. Look, if your truthful inward answer did not immediately correspond with that third suggestion, then you're going to need to make some major adjustments to properly grasp this book as the original audience would have. Because the original audience was not fascinated with Alexander's role in it or Alexander's reception of it. What they were fascinated with is that Jews maintained their testimony as the people of God distinct by the law. How interesting is it that that's not what we find fascinating about the book? So we want to correct that from the beginning. At this point, you know what we're going to do. We're going to ask an anointed man to stand and pray for us. Father, thank you for tonight. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word. Lord, your word has everything that we need. So, Father, we're asking that as we engage with your word tonight, Lord, we know your word is going to engage in our hearts. Father, help us to see the beautiful things in your word. That as we dive into your laws, we dive into the book of Daniel. Lord, allow our hearts to be inclined to your word. Show us, Lord God, how to halakha. Show us, Lord God, how to walk in our historical context. Father, we thank you. We glorify your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. So Brother Linton is going to read the text of Daniel 1. And if you haven't caught our drift already, you should be dialing into what the original audience would have found fascinating, not what your YouTube teacher is telling you is amazing about Daniel. Okay? Are we all on the same page there? Yes, sir. And we are going to set forth our very best assertions about chronology and textual criticism. And they'll be right. But that is not the point of this study. (laughs) In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of that. <sighs> Daniel then said to the guard whom the official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then come
compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found not he found none equal to, da to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Wow. All right, so how many of you have been doing your homework and studying the book of Daniel? Look at the hands. Man, that feels so much better than last week. <laughs> we want to say again that we appreciate all of the insights you've been sharing and all of the questions you've been asking. We're going to jump straight into verse 1, and we're going to start to answer some of those questions. And we're going to be setting you up for success for the rest of the book of Daniel. So verse 1, Linton. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. All right, so it's our desire to set you up for success from the outset of our study together. That is why we warned you last week to avoid the temptation that arises from personal insecurity to overly rely on the works of commentators. Now, some have inferred a chronological inconsistency in the first two chapters of Daniel, and they do this in error of what the scripture testifies to. In the Lord's providence, we covered Jeremiah yeah. prior to encountering this book of Daniel together, and that was intentional. The scripture held in light of all other scripture will resolve imagined inconsistencies. <laughs> yeah. We're going to dig into how the scripture proves itself out. Now, as much as we do appreciate the Jewish sages for their many brilliant observations regarding the text, you will come to find that there is substantial and nefarious motives for them to avoid the obvious chronology detailed in the book of Daniel, solely because the implications regarding the validity of Yeshua's claim to be Messiah. Wow. So... Peyton is going to pick up here with a minute and a minute and work through this with us. The reason we warned you is you've gotten quite used to going to Chabad.org and seeing what Rashi says. The problem is, is Rashi really does not want Yeshua to be a Messiah. Uh, he, he's got a vested interest in it, and he's quoting the Seder Olam, who also had a vested interest, <laughs> and it's the most confused timeline that they ever present anywhere precisely because they're trying to avoid the obvious conclusion of Daniel. We wanted to spare you that. Yep. We didn't succeed with all of you. I can tell by the questions that are asked what you've been reading, and that's okay. We love you. I read all kind of things, too. And you have the right to be wrong if you want to. But we're going to present tonight from the Scripture how to resolve those issues and then go through the practical application. Amen. Yeah. Now, verse 1 gives us two points of reference. 
It's beautiful because we start right off the bat in Daniel 1.1 with these two points of reference in the timeline. It's both Jehoiakim's third year and it's Nebuchadnezzar's first siege of Jerusalem. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the son of Nabopolassar and will yeah. become king right. yeah. the very moment that his father dies. Yeah. So we have a slide that will be familiar and we're going to walk through some of the things that happened during Jehoiakim's reign. And you see this was from 609 to 597, the battle of Carchemish, where Nebuchadnezzar beats Pharaoh Necho. The Assyrians are conquered by Babylon. We have the first siege of Jerusalem and Nebuchadnezzar's return from defeating Assyria. Bing, bing, bing. We have Daniel exiled. And in 597, we have the second siege of Jerusalem, which is where Ezekiel is exiled. Now, keep in mind on these dates here. We see that Nebuchadnezzar's father dies, and Nebuchadnezzar is in his first year of ascension of, as king of Babylon. Now, these years are counted like the birth of a child, from 0 to 12 months, ascending to the first year. Now, we're going to unpack this as we move through some more slides to make our point, but there are ways of counting dates that are native and natural to the Eastern mind that we necessarily don't uh, grab hold of. When we say a child is born, even if it's in the first 12 months, we still say they're either X and out months or one years old. Now, during Jehoiakim's third year, Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon, but still has to travel back to Babylon and go through the ascension process. Real quick, just to help you as, as we read this, Linton, how old is your baby? Year, year and a half. Oh, man, you just had another one, a, a beautiful strapping oh, boy. Four days. Four days. Why didn't he say he's one year old? He's in the first year of his life. Why doesn't he say he's one year old? Because it's not till after you've completed a year that you say that. Right. You keep that in your mind. Help us out, Judah, with Battle of Carchemish. All right. You guys can see this next slide with me. So the Battle of Carchemish, which was referenced in the last slide as well, is approximately 605 BC. Established Babylon as the dominant power all the way to the border of Egypt. This is describing the expansion of Babylon, the gaining control. As this is happening, and you keep going down, Nebuchadnezzar campaigned in Palestine and conquered Ashkelon. Jehoiakim quickly gave allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar, who had recently been crowned king of Babylon after his father's death, shortly after the Battle of Carchemish. So Nebuchadnezzar is king at that moment after his father's death. Okay, you guys still tracking with us? Yeah. Just making sure we're catching the detail. Perhaps during this campaign, Nebuchadnezzar took hostages, including Daniel and his three companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and carried them to Babylon. Did you get in the sequence of events? Recently crowned king, hostages taken, going back to Babylon. As the concept here is mentioned just a few moments ago, it's very, very similar to a son that is not called one years old until he has reached one year old. When we're talking about the monarchy, we achieve one year when you have reached one year. This is also similar to the differences between the way Americans and Europeans view floors in a high-rise building. Anybody traveled a little bit? Yeah. Europeans tend to call the ground level floor zero, or just to put a big G symbol, and the floor 
So what you would think of as the second story of your house right. is the first floor that you've achieved. The concept being you haven't built anything when you're on the ground. Your first floor is the one that you built. Just differences in the way that it's conceptualized. But the dating method of the Babylonians' kings is called the ascension method, or the accession year system. Now, if you didn't follow that, another way to think about it is that we elect a president in November. And he is president in most people's minds at that point. But he's not sworn in to the presidency until the very next calendar year. Yeah. So if you're reading about it a thousand years later, what year did President Biden get elected? 2020. But the first year of his presidency is not until 2021. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? Here's a slide that will help you. It's a timeline in the book of Daniel according to the scriptural account. And we're going to walk through these scriptures for you. The perceived problem is that we're in uh, a three-year training period in this chapter, and the next chapter picks up two years into Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and that looks like a contradiction. And you should see the wizardry that goes into trying to get around that and the assertion that there's problems in translations going from Aramaic to English. That's all rather ridiculous, just to be honest. Very. If you're staring at the screen, in Daniel 1.1, you can see on the left side of your screen, it's the third year of Jehoiakim. This is Nebuchadnezzar's king-elect period. He's king the moment that his father dies, but he's not been sworn in on the Babylonian throne according to their new year secession system. Yeah. And that's why we have him as king before it's his first year as king, the same way Linton has a son right now that is very much a son the moment he crowned, <laughs> but we don't call him one year old till his first birthday. It's also the first siege of Jerusalem and Daniel and his companions are exiled. We're going to read Jeremiah 25.1 here in just a minute. It corresponds perfectly. In Jer Jeremiah 25.1, we're told it's the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign and the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's. You can see how the accession system works there. The first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign as the Babylonian kingdom counts them. Then in the second year, on the far right of the screen, of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Daniel 2 takes place. So he's been king for three years, but according to their counting system, it is only his second year as king-elect transitioned or ascended to kingship. To illustrate the scriptural basis for this, we're going to compare Daniel 1.1, Jeremiah 25.1.2, and Daniel 2.1 on this next slide that Justin will walk through. And if you had not confused yourself by reading Rashi, this would not be difficult for you. So I'm going to ask you to not be particularly stubborn on this point. All right, so here are the scriptural basis for Daniel's timeline. In Daniel 1.1, which we just read, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This would be Nebuchadnezzar's ascension year. Hasn't quite reached year one yet, but he is still the king. Then we read in Jeremiah 25, 1. The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year, not third, fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. This would actually be Nebuchadnezzar's first official year. Then we have Daniel 2, 1, which we'll cover next week. 
In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. This would be Nebuchadnezzar's second official year. Now, Do you for see how clearly that chronology works out? Yeah. An attempt to make it his 11th year does harm to the text. An attempt to change what this obviously says, which is what Rashi does, does harm to the text. And I'm telling you in advance, we've been studying this for a little while. He has a motive. None of the kingships, according to Rashi, line up with what Daniel says, because if they do, then we would expect a Messiah in the first century. And that is the issue at hand. So we're trying to warn you about it in advance. Y'all with me? You're nodding? Yes. You there? Yes. Okay. So if you want more information on confirmations for this dating system in Scripture, go in your own time and read 2 Kings 25.8 and Jeremiah 52.12, and you're going to find out that it lines up perfectly when you do the math with Daniel 1, Jeremiah 25, and Daniel 2. There's no wizardry that needs to happen if you just <laughs> focus on the Scripture itself. But we have already spent more time on this than we wanted to. But the apparent problem resolves itself when you consider that Daniel records the Babylonian monarchy in the manner in which the kingdom itself reckoned their reigning periods. What is more, it is consistent throughout the biblical narrative. When we get into Daniel 2, this is going to save you guys from unnecessary turmoil that is usually derived from reading the commentaries like Rashi that we warned you in advance about. Let's just say it, though. We love Rashi. We read him every day. I bet I've read more of his work than any of you here. But there are well-known issues. For instance, when you're reading the Masoretic text and you're reading Psalm 22, yeah, yeah. I mean, the change is significant, and there's a reason for it. We need to be wise to those things the same way that if you're reading a cessationist commentary, you might understand that while they have a, an amazing teaching on Matthew, Corinthians 12 is going to be a little bit problematic. Yeah. I mean, we just need to recognize where our own biases are and uh, brothers that we're reading. That's, yeah. It's really that simple. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temples of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of the court officials, bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. So guys, we've officially started into the text of Daniel. Yeah. And as we're getting started here tonight, we want to start this out with really digging into the text and feeling what is going on in these moments in the first three verses. The difficulties in these first verses are captured in the laments that follow the book of Jeremiah, i.e. the book of Lamentations. It is very hard for us in this room to imagine just exactly what this would be like. What this whole experience of exile and being transferred to a, a nation that you're unsure of with your own place of residence being totally ransacked and destroyed. We wanted to start by looking at Deuteronomy chapter 28. We're gonna read verses 12 through 13 together. And we want you guys to consider being given this promise in Deuteronomy. It says, The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands. 
You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top and never at the bottom. Now, the Israelites had been taken, uh, the Israelites taken captive had the promise of Deuteronomy, which expresses God's desire for the nation. Yeah. They also had to wrestle with the awesome truth that the nation had not paid attention to the commands of the Lord, and they had not carefully followed them. In this situation, would you see yourself as a victim? What would you be thinking about? What would you be feeling? What kinds of actions do you think would erupt from your heart? Remember the heights that the Judean household of David had enjoyed under the days of Solomon in 1 Kings 10, starting in verse 18. 1 Kings 10, starting in verse 18. Then the king made a great throne, inlaid with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps, and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. Somebody say nothing like it. Nothing, nothing like, like it. it. As we keep reading, you're going to hear things that are unparalleled about the Solomonic age. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver, because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's day. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea along with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years it returned carrying gold, silver, ivory, and apes and baboons. I could be on the ship. King Solomon was greater in riches and in wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. Wow. How, how many? All. The whole world sought audience with Solomon. To hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, spices, horses, and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Cuba. The royal merchants purchased them from Cuba. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and Arameans. <laughs> Under the leadership of the Davidic house, the son of David, Solomon, Think about that title, Son of David, just like they cried out to Yeshua, Hosanna, Son of David, save us. Israel had become the most influential and powerful nation on earth. So what does that mean for these Jewish nobles, these Jewish royal youths that now are not in that position? They're actually in a position of slavery, in a position of captivity. The temple to God of Israel had no equal on earth. The articles of the temple were exquisite 
and unique on earth. And in a few chapters, we're going to see a Babylonian beast drinking from them like they were common things. What would that feel like if it were you? Kings from other nations had come to Jerusalem to witness its grandeur, its majesty, and the wisdom of the king that is the son of David. And now his descendants are in captivity in Babylon. What would that reversal of fortunes be like for you? You feel persecuted if the price of a latte goes up. What would it be like? We're mad that gas is gone. What would this be like? What would it be like to lose everything? How would you feel about that? Engage with that text for a minute. Stop reading this story as if some old lady is putting it on a felt board in your Sunday school class. And engage with it as if it were happening to you. How would you feel? You might be tempted to obfuscate the reason that these things occurred and to shift blame. You might not want to engage with the fact that through many warnings and much time, one issue is at stake. You will either honor God's law or you will not. And you might not want to come to grips with your own culpability in why this has occurred. I mean, I know this from many pastoral counseling sessions. You ask the man, he blames the wife. You ask the wife, she blames the snake. (laughs) Transferal of the blame has been every nation's national pastime, not baseball. And yet you see no hint of that in these Jewish boys. You see the opposite occur. But before we get there, let's read Psalm 89 together. Would it pique your curiosity to know that you can see how they felt about being in exile? They wrote it into their scriptures? In Psalm 89, verse 35, we have a fine example. It says, Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever, and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. Do you see quotations there? Because this is repeating something God had said in the past. Verse 38 is the psalmist's response. But you have rejected. You have spurned. You have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his strongholds to ruins. Now this psalm is written by a man named Etan the Ezraite. And he is expressing the lament of enduring the Lord's discipline. Apparently, he is grappling with the feelings of rejection, spurning, and anger that he is experiencing in contrast with the everlasting promise given to the descendants of David. We know that God did not renounce that covenant because we have learned about the book of Consolation which comes after. But how did this man feel in his historical context seeing what he was seeing? Which begs a question. What do you do when it looks like the promises of God are failing in your life? I know what you do. Many of you have come to talk to me and the men on this stage. I know what you do. You feel despised and dejected. Like It doesn't work! I tried! But it's not working! Anybody in here ever felt like that? Yeah, Yeah, two brave hands. 
How many of you have felt like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Engage with this book like that. Because it's not just a story. It's the truth. And you will admire these noble, royal Jewish youths ever more so. Because you don't see a hint of this inside of them. Now, all of us have admitted to feeling like that, but how much more would you react if you were one of the Israelites, the Jewish men and women of Israel, and, more importantly, of the royal line being brought to Babylon? (laughs) I can't help but look up and see Carlos smiling at me, and he's an anointed man of God. But he's told me in the past that in a previous lifetime, in another country, He lived in somewhat of a pampered position. So imagine being wrenched from daddy's house where you had everything and not just put in a slum, but taskmasters over you. How do you think anyone would feel in that situation? Could you be rejected? Could you be tempted to think the whole thing's a joke and now there's more reason than ever to apostatize yourself? It goes even further than this in scripture. Listen to the anguish of Psalm 137. Now, as we begin to read Psalm 137, you need to put yourself in their shoes for a moment. This is the exact situation that we've been talking about. The Israelites, even those of the royal line, are being dragged into exile. And the context here is on the shores of Babylon. And this is what they are saying in their interactions with the enemy peoples. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Man. When they remembered what Solomon's throne was like. When they remembered what it was like to be the top nation in the entire world. When they remembered the history of their fathers and remembered Zion, they sat on the shore of Babylon and wept. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors are what? Tormentors. That's not a Harry Potter movie. That's that's the biblical description of the Babylonians' treatment of the Israelites. Tormentors. (laughs) Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of those songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget it still. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. (laughs) The Israelites were sitting there and weeping. And their tormentors, while they were weeping, they came up to them and they were making demands of them. And yet, even in this setting... There was a resolve to remember Jerusalem, which is the very throne of God. Come on. Come on, somebody. Is that not admirable? Yes. Yes. Listen for a moment. This resolve did not mean that things were easy or that they were going to get any easier. A lot of times we get to a moment where we have a moment of resolve and we're like, man, I'm just going to do this. And then things get harder and we react adversely. No, what's happening here is they have resolve, things are getting harder, and what we're going to see happening with Daniel and his companions in this book 
is they're going to dig down deeper. Amen. They're going to dig for more joy. They're going to dig and remember Zion and remember who they are. Come on. Listen to Lamentations 4, starting in verse 11. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger, and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Now, the events that we have studied in Jeremiah and that we are now embracing in Daniel were the shock of the world. What is more, they were the shock and awe of God's people. The people that we read had great promises. The death and destruction that was poured out on Jerusalem by the Babylonians is difficult to imagine in today's setting, especially as we sit here in America. So we ask you again, how would you react if you were subjected to this kind of humiliation and suffering. When you're subjected to humiliation and suffering, your response might be, I know my rights. I can, I can subject myself to the law. But imagine even that stripped away from you. Yeah. To put this in perspective, in Solomon's day, there's no such thing as a Babylonian empire. There might be a spiritual archon that is over Babylon, but... As a nation, it, it doesn't really exist. So you go from being the chief among the nations of the world with the wisest king in the world, with everything literally going your way and looking more and more like the kingdom of God on earth, to being conquered by a nation that hasn't even risen up in the day that your power was at its zenith. Yeah. I don't know. I was a kid and watched the movie Red Dawn, and that came to mind. Yep. But even in that movie... There were two superpowers at battle. Yeah. Right. In this case, there's been a reversal of fortunes to the very place where God knocked down the tower and Israel sprung into being and he chose Israel out of all the nations of the earth to be his firstborn son. Mm. Now the seat of that spiritual power is dominating you and your people. How do you feel? Yeah. I, I, there, there couldn't be a, a, a modern day parallel to this that I can think of. But it'd be something like if Lithuania invaded and conquered the United States right now. Okay? Right. Or maybe something even far more non-plausible than that, like the Canadians did. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to imagine what this would feel like. Yeah. 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 Okay, as we move into the situation, the treatment of these young, royal nobles of Israel seems fitting that we visit, that we remind you of something that Jeremiah said about these days. It's found in Jeremiah 24, 4 through 7. Then the word of You're the Lord. all going to want to get to this. You need this. You, you need this down in your soul. Don't sit back and fall asleep. Get, engage in this. We're not having you read it for time's sake. We're reading it. But you, you want this. Amen. There. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Like these good figs. Somebody say, good figs. Good figs. I regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I sent away from this place to the land of the Babylonians. My eyes will watch over them for their good. 
and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me. Hallelujah. That I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. What we are about to jump into, what we are reading this evening, is about the story of the good fix that Jeremiah spoke of. They're being identified. These royals from the house of Judah that are in captivity but are designated as good figs. Good figs that cannot be made into victims because they understand the promises of their king. Good figs that will not assimilate. They will not go along so that they can get along well with the Babylonians. Good figs that are good precisely because in the face of insurmountable odds, they maintain the law of their God. These sons of God not only survived the discipline, they thrive in the discipline. The discipline of God, and it shows them to be exactly what God has always been aiming for when he created the nation of Israel. Come on, take that in for a second. This is what God was always after. A people that could stand, whether being disciplined or not, whether in favor of the other nations or not, and show outstanding loyalty to him vis-a-vis loyalty to the law that he gave this nation. Amen. Yeah. This is an example for us in every way. Yeah. As, as we've mentioned several times tonight, and you're a mature audience that understands the ultimate outcome of the Jewish people, you should never think that God is done with Israel. Amen. Not in any circumstance, not in any captivity, he's refining his people. These young, noble, and royal Hebrews are everything that God is making Israel into. They're even a shadow of the things to come at later days. And we should learn from their life and their historical context together. Amen. Why don't we pick up in verse 4, Brother Linton? Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and It's ironic that everything that the law does for a man, according to Psalm 19, or according to Deuteronomy 4, is the criteria that these men were picked by. But I want to tell you the Babylonians had a really different reason for picking these attributes. Let's let's go through them for a minute. There should be a slide, young royal Hebrews. Have we said young Hebrew royals enough? For whatever reason, we miss something in all of our storytelling. We miss that these are nobles of royal birth. They are of the house of David. They are the ones that the kingship of Israel must come from. There are seven attributes listed in these two verses. They must be of the royal family of David. You can get that from the third verse. They must be youths. You've seen that we've surmised that they're probably in their mid-teens. They must be without blemish physically. As every good sacrifice must be. They must be handsome and in good appearance. So many of you would qualify, but I would not. (laughs) They must have an aptitude for learning. But what do the Babylonians want them to learn? Their language. They must be well informed and quick to understand. In other words, we're looking for smart, compliant children. They must be qualified to serve in the king's 
palace. Ashpenaz was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. This is an overt attempt to assimilate the young Jewish nobles into the Babylonian system. You, to be able to appreciate the situation that this puts these teenagers in, you need to consider some background in the law. And I would suggest that, that you hyper-focus on this because we live in a time where the government wants to educate our children from pre-K all the way into their 30s for the very same reason, so that they won't know what a boy and girl is, so that they won't know what heterosexual means, so that they will not understand the truths of God, but are compliant and quick to understand the Babylonian system. There's a lot to be learned from this, but our foundation comes from the law. Yeah, let's hand them out. All right, so who wants to read? Andrew Hayes, you're going to get Deuteronomy 12, 3 through 5. Rob, you're going to get Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 13. Steve Thomas, you get 2 Kings 17, 15. Nick Rosales, you get 2 Chronicles 33, 1 through 2. Nolan, you're going to get Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. Carlos, you get Deuteronomy. Actually, we will read that one. But for your notes, it's Deuteronomy 14, 2. Then, JJ, you get Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 8. Adam Cora, you get Esther 3, 8. Uh, Paul Rosales, you get John 17, 15 through 18. Sloan, you get 2 Corinthians 6, 17. 1 Peter 2, 9 goes to Rick. And Revelation 18, 4 through 5 goes to Spencer. If you didn't catch all of those references, we're going to repeat them as you read them, and we're going to emphasize some things from each reference. All right, so Deuteronomy 12, 3 through 5. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are in a secret place. The Lord your God will choose from among all four tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place. So the Israelites, the Jewish people, are told in Deuteronomy at the formation of their nation, they are not to worship the Lord their God in their way. Other nations. This tells us that the law is not a dispensation to be dispensed of when the circumstances are no longer convenient. The law is eternal. Rather, it is your life. Deuteronomy 32, 47 says, these are not idle words, they are your life. Jews were not allowed to worship in the ways of the nations around them. God wanted a distinct people. Jews were not allowed to become homogenous with the neighboring peoples. He wanted a distinct people. There was only one God that they could serve. There was only one place that they could offer sacrifices. There was only one right way. And now these youths are being indoctrinated indoctrinated with deviant thinking, deviant ways, and deviant religion. Wow. And mind you, they are teenagers when they are in this <laughs> yeah. position. Come on now. Yeah. What does Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 13 say? When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let 
no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Ooh. And because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. Wow, what a yes. passage. Did yes. you hear it in verse 9? That the Jews were specifically not to imitate the detestable ways of the nations. Yeah. These Jewish youths that we're talking about, they were chosen by Ashpenaz because they were royal they were noble. They were physically without defect. They were handsome. They were smart. They were able to learn to imitate the ways of Babylon. What about 2 Kings 17, 15? They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. Hmm. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had how clear this is. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. Now, these youths in Daniel, these Jewish youths, undoubtedly remembered the reason that Samaria fell under the reign of Hosea. It was because Samaria imitated the nations around them. Essentially, they assassinated their character when they assimilated to the culture around them. It was because the Samaritans did not listen to the words, do not do as they do. Now listen to 2 Chronicles 33, starting in verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Do you catch the age of Manasseh? He was 12 years old when he became king. And you heard about his character and his conduct. These Jewish youths in Daniel 1 undoubtedly remembered the indictment against Manasseh, king of Judah. He was 12. And they understood what he did at the time he was accountable to the word of God and responsible for what he did with it. These Jewish youths remembered this precisely because he followed the detestable practices of the nation's surrounding Israel. Look, I want to interact with this with you for just a moment. Most of you have known me a very long time. When you were still on your parents' phone plan, when they were paying for your room and board, as Brother Linton likes to say, when your mother's titty was still in your mouth, even though you were a grown man. <laughs> That's I was a very married. technical word <laughs> for the apparatus of feeding. Teaches the lexicon. <laughs> Consider this for a moment. You know me. I was married. I'd been working full time and had several children before the age you had any accountability for your own life. True. These Hebrew youths are much younger than I was at that time. Yeah. And I know I was not ready to stand for this. Think about the position they are being put in, but they know what kings have done before them at the same age that failed. What would you do in this situation? What would be your gut response? Think back to your age at that time frame. For many of you, it would be difficult for you to answer that question right now. There's a character of conviction that stood on the law. 
Guys, are you ready for this to get even more complicated as we proceed? Yeah. As we get into the even more complicated, let's continue to grapple with the simple. A Samaritan king, while reigning, imitated the nations around him, and it was the ruination of Samaria. Several Judean kings imitated the nations around them, and it was the ruin of Judea. In the best of circumstances, they were still not able to stand and hold fast to what God said. Now contrast that with these royal, noble Hebrew youths in the worst of circumstances that are standing for what God has said. Can I tell you, if you do not do it in the good times, you will not do it when it becomes more difficult? True. That's a good word. Very true. There's an incredible lesson for us here. Yeah. It didn't require different circumstances. It required different men. Yeah. Yeah. Hence the name, Life-Changing Ministries. Amen. If you will not assemble when there is no COVID mandate then you certainly will not assemble when there is a COVID mandate. We are being tuned up in this house to stand on the word of our God regardless of the circumstance. And do you know who you have to thank for that? It's no one standing on this stage. It is our older brother, the Jewish nation. You are indebted to the Jewish people for the book that you have in your laps and the stories of these Hebrew youths. If you didn't love Israel for eschatological reasons, you should love Israel for the example that is set before us. With that in mind, we're reading in the Ketuvian. (laughs) What we're about to jump into is Jeremiah's words to the exiles. Look, in addition to every admonition in the law that we've already read, there are more instructions for how they were to conduct themselves. This comes from Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Am I the only one that likes nice, neat, clean categories? No. No. I'd be happy to go (laughs) smash stone. I'd be happy to go kill the infidel. Or be happy to go live in a monastery. Understand the inherent tension between standing on what the law says and being told to seek the prosperity of Babylon, to live in Babylon, to settle down in Babylon. These Jewish Jews are not able to segregate themselves away from the assimilating influences. They're not allowed to cloister themselves into monasteries for protection. They have to hold fast to the commands while they also seek the good of Babylon. Can you appreciate that tension? Yes. Yes. See, most Christians have no real concept, no real concept of having a different diet, different dress, different daily habit of every kind than the world around you. But the Jewish people do. 
for the most part, our differences tend to be inward, hmm. not seen outwardly. But this was not so with Israel. Their differences were immediately externally perceivable in every area of their lives. The basis for Israel's formation was their own distinctness from the nations around them. And for example, listen to Deuteronomy 14.2 in the King James Version. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. That word holy means separate people unto the Lord thy God. And the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. Whether it was not cutting the hair on the side of your head, the locks, or it was the circumcision or the kosher diet, the nation God chose, he chose to be discernibly distinct from other people's. Man, we can learn a lesson from that, being discernibly distinct from other peoples. This conspicuousness served as a fluorescent vest of kinds that identified them everywhere they went. God wanted this attention to be drawn to them based on the law because of the second thing that would be conspicuous about them in Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 8. These Jewish youths, they literally stand out like a sore thumb. They stand out like an Ethiopian in Moscow, maybe. <laughs> or Abimbola in Moscow. <laughs> they stand out like Andrew Hayes at a midget festival. <laughs> Even with all of these, the thing that it's supposed to do is draw you and your attention right back to the unique relationship that they have with the king of the universe. Come on. As we move through the book of Daniel, you should take note. That is exactly what happens in this book. Again and again, these Jews are different than everyone around them. And yet their God is close to them in a way that no Babylonian had ever experienced or has ever experienced. Come on. Unfortunately, though, this also means that some hate them for this kind of loyalty to God. And it was that loyalty was expressed in loyalty to the law of their God. Esther indeed captures the sentiment well in Esther chapter 3 and verse 8. Then Amman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all the people, and who do not obey the king's laws. Now, knowing this, can you appreciate the extent to which these Jewish youths are pressed between the king of their locality and the king of the universe? Uh, yeah, yeah. Are we growing in our appreciation for what they were up against? Yes. Yeah. Now, we had to make a difficult decision last year about whether to honor God uh, in the things that he told us to assemble together, or we would honor the, governor, the government that told us that we could not assemble. 
You know yourselves the wrestling that occurred and how difficult that time was. What if, I, what if it were not a singular issue like COVID restrictions, but was about every issue that defines your life? Yeah, everyone. Would that be a little bit harder for you? Notice as we go through the book of Daniel that Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah never called into account, were never called into account by the government for anything other than their observance of the law of their gods. This is a good model for all of us and all believers. Let's stand on that for a minute. They didn't have a mostly peaceful protest with buildings burning in the back. (laughs) The only issue that you find conflict between them and the government over is when the government forbids things that God requires or requires of them things that God forbids, and then and only then do they say no to the king of their locality so that they can say yes to the God of the universe. The body of Christ must grow up in this area. That is not rebellious. That is God conscious. That is not looking for a problem. It is being conspicuous as a person dedicated to the living God in a dying world. Come on. On a fairly practical note, there was no area of misconduct in the things entrusted to them anywhere to be found. They weren't late for work and claiming to be persecuted for it. Come on. So while we're talking about the things that we're growing into... I want to address our very weekly concerns and considerations. There, you go. there was no area that they could be accused and it be the truth based upon their handling of the things that were entrusted to them. Whether they were entrusted to them by a physical Gentile king or not, they treated it as if they were working unto their king. Amen, single guys? All right. I know I slept through the first four hours of my work day, but see, the thing is, is I was just up watching Passion of the Christ. (laughs) Okay. How about you do a good job with what you're entrusted to and the only conflict in your life be over what God has required of you? That's a good word. John 17, 15 through 18. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, then there can be no Messiah come through them, and you wouldn't know that it came through them. Most of you have misunderstood your Newer Testament. The fact that a Jew and a Gentile had the same worth before God, 
does not mean that we are homogenous. Or else, how would you know that the promises given to Israel were ever fulfilled? Yeah. This is a big problem in Christian theology. But that is not our topic tonight. 2 Corinthians 6.17 will help you see an apostle make an application based on the book of Daniel. See, the apostles make the same application that we're asserting tonight. Our Babylon may be bigger in the sense that it is the world at large, but our distinction cannot be any less clear. Amen. Peter takes these very words of the law regarding Israel as a nation, and he applies them to believers, and it's not because they're the same thing. It's because we're guided by the same set of standards. Come on. 1 Peter 2.9. See, Peter's taking what was spoken in Deuteronomy to Israel, and he's applying it now to all believers because they serve the same God. And if this were not enough, the last book in the Christian Bible appropriates the same language in regard to believers under the domination of mystery Babylon in the future. This is Revelation 18, 4 through 5. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. So we, most of us in this room, are not Jews. That is clear. We are pork-eating Gentiles in here for the most part. But we are still called to the same level of devotion that we see in the lives of these four men. Oh, that's good. Now as we move forward, let us suggest something to you. You are not just as responsible as these Jewish youths. The same moral heroism that they expressed in their day, we need to be expressing in our yes. day. Amen. It's our time to put on display yeah. the kind of character that these men did. Amen. And they did it in an excellent fashion, don't you believe? Yes. They did an excellent job in their historical context, and now it's our time and our job and in our historical context to hit the mark like they did. Yeah. What about verse 5? The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them two names. Uh -oh. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Wow. All right, church, let's engage with this text. Your captors offer you the best of their food. They're even going to train you. And your response is that you do not want to defile yourself with it. Defile. Say that word, defile. 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 Imagine that we're having dinner tomorrow night, and you look at me and go, I cannot defile myself with this. <laughs> Can you imagine the fear that you might have making that kind of statement? They just ripped you from your home and your country and your kinsmen, mm -hmm. brought you to their land, are offering you food, not, not 
response is, oh. I, I dare not, not, I'm not hungry, or that's not really my I'm sorry, food. I'm fasting. I, I, I do not want to defile myself <laughs> with what you are offering. <laughs> now, can you imagine what the Babylonians' response was? Oh, come on. They would say things, we conquered you, and we conquered your God. You ungrateful, you fill in the blank. I don't know how Babylonians spoke. I, I know what it sounds like on construction sites. Yeah. But we could imagine there was some tension in that. What could possibly motivate these Jewish youths to take such a risk? What was motivating them for that kind of attitude? Come on. Come on, it was a love for their God. Yes. It was a love for their God's law. Yeah. And an understanding that violating that law was what brought the captivity in the first place. Oh, that's yeah. true. Come on. Okay. We're going to work through a few passages, and we're going to give you the reference loudly and clearly. All right. Deuteronomy 11, 22 through 23 is our first one. If you carefully observe all these commands I am giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to hold fast to him. Somebody say, hold fast. Hold fast. You're going to hear that a lot. Then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. The only reason Israel ever rose to prominence, talking about that Solomonic age, was for holding fast to the law of the Lord. The reasons they suffered loss, they fell from that great height as a nation, was that they lost the law of the Lord. These Jewish Jews show us that holding fast to the law of the Lord is the only way to regain the royal position. I'm going to say they didn't fall, they stumbled. Temporarily. <laughs> and that Daniel and his three brothers, they proved that, don't they? Yes. 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 Look, let's, let's cover Deuteronomy 13.4. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. These Jewish youths showed more reverence for God than Babylon. We would all do well to take note of that. I have heard more cowardly interpretations of Romans 13 in the last few years from weak little sisters within the church that happen to be male. You gotta honor the government. You gotta have you read this book? Yeah. You must revere God more than you revere any other thing. And how do you show it? By holding fast to his word. Don't tell me how much you love the Lord if you will not hold fast to his word when it causes you to suffer loss. These are teenagers, and they get it right. My cry to the one association from the beginning of this has been, my God, show more deference for your king than you do the local government. And praise God, today we are, of course, that contraction's kind of released right now. I wonder what will happen next time. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe that is why we're studying how to live faithfully within a historical context. Amen. I told you we were in the days of Jeremiah, and we are. There will be national calamity in this nation, which is why we are studying the book of Daniel, so you will know how to live in that context. Yeah. Yes. 
All right, Deuteronomy 30, verse 19 through 20 says, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you hear the same thing? Hold fast to him. Yeah. What does that look like? It looks something like this. Yeah! <laughs> You're hanging on! Let it go! You're holding fast to the Lord. Now, you can't do that with God because he is spirit. So how do you hold fast to the Lord? His word, his voice. And the Lord's voice is recorded in his word. Yes. All scripture is God breathed. It is his voice on the page. And to hold fast to the word of God is to hold fast to the Lord's voice. Not listening, not waiting for a new interpretation or prophecy, holding fast to what's written. These Jewish youths were committed to this. Committed church. Right down to the food that went into their mouths. How committed is that? <laughs> Listen to Joshua 22 verse 5. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses the servant of the Lord gave you. To love the Lord your God. To walk in all his ways. To obey his commands. To hold fast to him. And to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. So in this case, walking in his ways meant not eating what they eat. In our time, Christians, they're shouting, Oh, Romans 13, submit to the governing authorities. You know what would have happened if, the, if they would have done that? They would have eaten the delicacies of Babylon and dishonored their God. No, you need to engage with that a little more. Sometimes when you submit to what is being asked of you, no matter how well-intentioned, you are actually dishonoring your God by doing it. How far can a Christian be pushed in acceptance before he's dishonored God? How, how many times can you say, no, it, it's perfectly fine with me if you used aborted babies to develop that. No problem here before you've dishonored your God. This story is where it's at in the Bible to instruct us in our time. Somewhere in us, there must be such a great reverence for every word of God that it determines your actions in situations that others would think are inconsequential while they eat the delicacies of Babylon. What we're telling you tonight, brothers, sisters, we need you to understand this. What we're telling you tonight is that COVID-19 restrictions, the small hurdles that we have up to this point, they are just the beginning of our walk in this. God has blessed us reading through Daniel. God has blessed us with the testimony of these Jewish teenagers and what they did in their historical setting to set an example for us. To help shake us from a surface level kind of, I'm just going to follow you into this because it's the easiest thing. And the delicacies of Babylon, they kind of taste good. 
and it's just easier to eat what's put before me. I'm telling you, we're telling you tonight that it's going to take more of a maturity with the things of God in the days ahead. And guess what? Our security is what we're building together. Our security is when we get in unity here and God shows us what to do, we will be able to understand, be secure in it, and stand together just like Daniel and the other three men were doing in their time in history. We got to grow a set like they did, grow some spiritual stature, and impersonate what they put on display. I love that we are growing in our security together. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 31. I hold fast to your statutes, O Lord. I hold fast. Do not let me be put to shame. Church, if I'm engaging with this text, I hear an unbroken resolve. I hold fast. Do not let me be put to shame. But if the world tries to subject me to shame and scorn, I still hold fast. They're going to have to come and take it. These true Israelite youths held fast to the statues of the Lord, and what do we do? We honor them for it. We're inspired by their faith. Now, right now, we want to look at the names of these Jewish youths in Hebrew and their Chaldean counterparts, and we have a slide for you. All right, you guys following me? Yeah. We got a larger point out of this. So, Daniel. God's given name means God is my judge. Good name, Daniel Cho. <laughs> That's right. What Babylon was trying to make Daniel into was Bell's prince. Hananiah, the gracious gift of the Lord. One of my sons carries that name. What Babylon was trying to make them into was the command of the moon god, Aku. Or Allah. Michel, who is like God? Into Meshach, who is what Aku or Allah is. You notice the mild similarity in the Babylonian name? It's close to what they were called to be. Azariah, Yahweh has helped because it becomes Abednego, servant of Nego. This gives you a flavor of what Babylon was trying to produce in these young men. And these names are a moniker, an indication of what they wanted to form them into. Since we all live in a time when the government wants to educate your child from cradle to the grave, precisely for the purpose of indoctrination, and if you don't believe that, visit any college campus, you really should engage with this slide. The enemy looks at your God-given function and wants to pervert it into something more functional for his purposes within the world. This is literally discipleship in reverse. And it's one of the many reasons that we advocate parents discipling their own kids and us banding together and teaching and discipling our own children rather than sending them to the magicians at Babylon. The only kind of schooling that the Bible endorses is homeschooling. There was no public education. But let's look at discipleship and the changing of names. So the changing of names is not uncommon in the Bible. Numbers 13, 16 says, These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name 
Joshua, which means salvation. The truth is, is if our names and functions are going to be changed, then let it be because our function is expanding in godliness, not decreasing in godliness. Let it be because we are being discipled into men who carry the function of the name change that God wants to give us, not what the world wants to give us. Yeah, listen to Mark 3.16. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Jesus himself took Simon and he said, ha ha, no, you're Peter. You're Peter. Which means rock. If our names and functions are changed just like Peter's was, then let it be because we had a revelation that expanded our holiness and expanded our usefulness to King Jesus. Before we move to verse 9, listen to Revelation 2, verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, say victorious. Victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. Known only to the one who receives it. Church, if our names and functions are changed, let it be because Jesus himself gave us the function and response to the victory over Babylon. And not just because we bowed to Babylon. Now let's go on to verse 9. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Wow. I gotta say, that's quite the astounding statement. But the practices of Babylon do justify this particular fear on the part of the official. Yeah. It's not unfounded. He's very, very concerned about losing his head over food and drink. If you consider in Daniel 3, men were thrown into a fire for perceived disobedience. In Daniel 6, a man was thrown into a lion's den for perceived disobedience. In the very next chapter that we cover, every wise man in Babylon has his head on the chopping block for not being able to read the king's mind, what he dreamed in his own mind and did not iterate. (laughs) This official is taking a serious risk because God has moved on him and he sees something real in these young men. Come on now. Look, this is a good place to point out that verse 9 begins with, and God caused the official to show sympathy. Don't underestimate the influence of your God even in a lost and dying official. Psalm 3310 says it this way. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. As you engage with this, acknowledge that the only reason that it's hard for you to accept these dangerous situations is because you love your own life. The Lord has a purpose and a plan. He will not permit the extinguishing of your life prior to the proper time. On the contrary, you are not able to extend your own life while remaining in his will. We have to accept that some of us glorify God in the punishment we receive at the hands of a government. 
Others of us glorify God precisely because he causes favor and we didn't receive the punishment that they threatened. But both glorify God. If we suffer, as Peter says, it will not be as a meddler. It will not be as a thief. But it will be as somebody who is speaking the very words of God. We have to grab hold of this. I'm not here to get along and go along. To play nice in the enemy sandbox. I intend to wrench souls out of the devil's clutches and deliver people from hell. Sometimes we risk our lives to do that. Other times, dying is the victory to do that. In either case, you either believe that the Lord holds this in his hands, or you cower and eat the delicacies of Babylon. But I have learned from these Jewish youths. Come on. They are the Israel that God has always been after, genetically and spiritually. Yeah. And they will not bow. And the fact that God delivered them was just so that they could go to the next test. Because we find out, well, it's one of our scriptures in the chain. Some are destined for a sword. Some for captivity. But we're all destined for a resurrection. And you better decide what it is that you're living for. Check out this astounding verse in Proverbs. This is Proverbs 21.1 in the ESV. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. <laughs> wow. He turns it wherever he will. Come on now. Yeah. Church, the truth of this verse is that it's not just Israeli kings whose hearts are in the hand of God. It is every king. Come on now. But the only opportunity for you to witness that personally is if you stand on the word of God. Amen. If you back off of your convictions based on the word, then you will never see the Lord do that to a king. Look at the life of Jesus. You see a Jewish sage, Nicodemus, coming to him wanting to know what is driving him because Jesus Jesus stood. And in fact, even after Jesus' death, you see a rich Jewish man, Joseph of Arimathea, wanting to come and partake in the body because Jesus stood and he was willing to die on the conviction that God had placed in him. This is how God moves these streams of water. Now, Ezra 6 denotes some incredible history about the building project that was happening in his day. Listen to verse 22. We're going to read it from the ESV tonight. Listen to what's going on here. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. No way. The king of Assyria's heart was turned toward in favor of Israel and what they were doing. And look at the rest of the verse. I couldn't be any more shocked if Kamala Harris spoke in tongues. (laughs) (laughs) Why did the king of the universe turn the king of Assyria's heart? So that he aided them in the work of the house of God. The house of Israel. He actually turned his heart so that he would look at a God that was not his, it was a different nation, and say, yeah, I want to help those people build the house for their God. Yeah, if that's possible, then there's no heart, no king that our God does not have control over. Now, for us, confidence in this very principle will allow us to stand before kings. Like Luke 21, verse 12 says, 
We're going to stand before kings and we'll be able to do it without fear because the scripture says and we are confident that God has king's hearts in his hands and he can control them however he wants to. Somebody say amen. 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 Listen to Psalm 47 verses 7 through 9. For God is the king of all the earth. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sing to him a song of praise. Come on. Like make his praise glorious. Yeah. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. Listen to this. For the kings of the earth belong to God. Yes. He is greatly exalted. Yes. Very simple in this verse. The kings of the earth belong to our God. Yep. Look, as we go to Revelation 13, which you should take from what Peyton just said, is that if Pharaoh's heart is hardened, it is God's will. Yeah. If the heart of Assyria, the king, is turned towards his people, it is his will. Yeah. Regardless of the circumstance. We're going to read Revelation 13, 9 through 10. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Does anybody in the room have ears? I got ears. Yes. Got them in pairs. So 100% of us, let us hear what God is speaking. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness. On the part of the lost. No. no. These words are about God's people. Yeah. Saints, we must grow. We must rise to the stature of the Jewish youths if we are going to stand in the days that are coming upon yeah. us in yeah. this house. Yeah. Why don't we continue in verse 11 through 14? Y'all still with us? Yes. yes. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel... Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please, test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. And treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. Wow. You guys have been studying this book for a couple weeks. You know what we're going to do with this. <laughs> we're going to tell you about the ten days. Yeah. We thought about various ways we could get into that, but it's 29 minutes that we have left to teach. And you're good Bible students. It's no mistake that the testing phase is 10 days. The period of time in the Bible frequently shows whether or not you're approved of God. The first occurrence is in Genesis 16.3. Abraham had been living in Canaan for 10 years, and then he had the mistake with Hagar. This shows whether his action was tested and approved or tested and disapproved. Yeah. I'm going to chalk up the Hagar Ishmael thing to a failed test. <laughs> but he got a lot of others right. Yeah. Amen. He settled, settled on ten righteous in Sodom to not be destroyed. This was a testing to see where God's justice was. How about Laban being cheated by Jacob by changing his wages? Ten times. How about ten generations from Adam to Noah, Shem to Abraham, and then Isaac to Boaz? The first begins to be tested, and then the tenth shows himself approved. What about the ten plagues against the gods of Egypt? 
What about the Ten Commandments for God's people? You know that a tithe is also a tenth, and it's meant to test your own heart to see where you stand? Israel in Numbers 14.22 is tested ten times. Jesse sent ten loaves and ten cheeses, and you know how much I love cheese. That's true. And he told David to bring back some assurance that they were all right. David also sent ten young men to Nabal, and Nabal struck dead ten days after the indictment the incident with David. Now these examples we could go on with all night long. There are ten lepers who come to Jesus. Some respond, others don't. This hermeneutic carries throughout the word, and your students who are able to ferret that out on your own. Oh, let's rip off a few more for fun. <laughs> Boaz took ten elders to marry Ruth. Mm. An abundant mm. supply of wine for Nehemiah's household every ten days. Come on now. Pentecost is ten days after Jesus ascended. What a testing period for them to see. Yeah. Hey, 500 saw him raised from the dead, but only 120 are in the upper room. What happened to the other 380? <laughs> well, you figure out what happened with that ten-day test. There are ten horns on the beasts of Daniel in Revelation, which represent ten kings. Smyrna in the book of Revelation suffered persecution for ten days, thank you, Jaron, to see if they would remain faithful. Throughout the Bible, that's what it is. As we said, we literally could go on all night, because it's a consistent hermeneutic in the word. We wanted to give you 20. <laughs> the very law that these Jewish youths are holding facts to is summarized in ten commands that represent the whole. Each man is tested by the extent to which he holds fast to the representation of that whole, to the whole commands of God, not one lentil left in the field. As we learn in this story, you come out ten times better if you hold fast to the word of God. Notice that these Jewish Jews do not ask the official to take their word for it. They said, put us to the test. Come on. They demonstrate with their own faith by actions that prove God's will. They prove that their trust in the God of heaven will result in the validation of the word of God. Yeah. Can anybody stretch out your hands and say, test me? Test me! Don't be insecure. Amen. If you're holding fast to the word of God, you need not fear the test. Come on, come on. In fact, you may come out ten times better for it. We're going to take a look at a couple New Testament passages together. I'm going to read John 10, 38 for you. But if I do it, even though you do not believe in me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am the Father. Can we just wrestle with you for a minute? Verbal persuasion is a tool overutilized by most everybody in this room. Hmm. This church was founded on the statement, less talk, more walk. There it is. I feel inspired <laughs> by these Jewish youths to revive that tradition. The Jewish youth's position did not rest on wise and persuasive words. They were willing to be tested and see if the power of God was with them or not. Yeah. Come on! Yeah. 1 Corinthians 2, 4-5 through 5 says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Yeah. 
There is nothing that is needed more in our time than the sub substance of this verse. <laughs> hey, if you don't pay attention to my words, that's not a big deal. But pay attention to the demonstration of the Spirit's power that is a result of my life. So that your, face re your faith rests on God's power. Hallelujah. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God. They went through a testing period and showed themselves approved. To be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God. Who tests our hearts. When you and I have undergone and passed these kind of 10 day tests, we prove to ourselves and we prove to our onlookers that we are pleasing to God and that God is pleased with us. And who cares about men's opinion at that Amen. point? Amen. Let's not be so insecure as to avoid every test of these kinds. Come on. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 6. Because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Now when you think of these young Hebrew youths, power, the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction oh, yeah. are all appropriate terms to describe their lives, right? Yes. yes. Is it appropriate to describe them this way? Yes. Now how about your life? If you're struggling with that answer, we are setting an example before you tonight in these four young Hebrew youths so that we might learn from their lives Amen. and move forward into greater glory. Let's move on to verse 15. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. All right, in the day of modern diets, I'd like to point out the fact that this was a miracle. That's a miracle. They looked better when they did not drink wine and eat meat. That's right. <laughs> yeah, the point is it's miraculous. Just like the favors. Not an endorsement of vegetarianism yeah. or any other ridiculousism. It's supernatural. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Oh, come on. Better vegetables with the righteous than eat with the wicked. If that's true, how much better is meat with the righteous? Amen. Yeah. That's called the feast of Abraham. Yeah. But here we have our very first intentional leading. Leading to the subject matter of chapter 2. Yeah. Because the author did not do this haphazardly. It was inspired. And the dating is correct. Amen. Placed by their holy God inside of them supernatural gifting. The ability to understand and interpret dreams of Spencer all kinds. Amen. Now I'm going to pick up verse 18. At the end of this time, sent by the king to bring the men, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better 
than all the magicians Woo. and enchanters in his whole Come on. Come on. You mean that simply standing fast on God's law will cause you to be ten times better? Maybe that's why Isaiah 42, 21 says it pleased God to make his law glorious and splendorous in his sight. As Christians, we often don't have a deep enough appreciation for this. It's all too easy to view it as belonging to some other dispensation. That's a lie. The testing period is 10 days, and they are 10 times better for it. Yeah. Psalm 119 and verse 99 says, I have more understanding than all of my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. The church, the enemy will try to assimilate you into this world's corruption by one of two ways. He'll either try to seduce you or destroy you. But the man who meditates on the testimonies of God will always prevail and surpass the expectations of even his teachers. Hallelujah. Come on. The Jewish youth seem to be the stars of Daniel chapter 1. Isn't that true? Yeah. Is that true? Yes. If any of you are ever privileged enough to meet them, I believe that they'll tell you that the law of God was the star of Daniel chapter 1. And that it's the entire point of the emphasis of this text. All they did was hold fast to the law. And God did every other thing. It's not just that they're exceptional. It's that that upon which they took their stand was exceptional. Yes. Yeah, that's and that's good. what made them exceptional. I think we probably ought to read verse 21 and get to some of our closing thoughts. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. <laughs> Look, we have so many good things prepared for you in weeks to come. For now, we only want to tell you that in verse 21, it gives us the span of Daniel's ministry in the first chapter to emphasize that a man who loves God's law will endure beyond every Gentile Come ruler. On. When we pick up next week, you will need to remember this slide. These are the languages of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 is in Hebrew. Daniel chapters 2 through 7, right in the middle, are in Aramaic. Daniel chapters 8 through 12 come back to Hebrew. Like the plan of salvation, the book of Daniel begins in Hebrew and ends in Hebrew. The man who honors the law of God will survive the Aramaic portions between the beginning and the end of the plan and the book. Y'all see what we did there? Yeah. yeah. Good. You're getting smarter. <laughs> so in our closing thoughts together, we want you to begin to consider Isaiah 39, verses 3 through 7 with us. And we're going to have several passages as we close. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, What did those men say? And where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, What did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. <laughs> There's nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Oh, man. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, 
who will be born to you will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So tonight, and through our study, up to this point, we have not attempted to answer the questions regarding whether or not Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were actually made eunuchs. But we can tell you that it was a relatively common practice in the ancient world. So whether or not they were spared is a detail that the text does not explicitly cover for us. But what can we tell you? We can tell you tonight that these men bet their balls on the promises contained within the law of God. How will we, if these men bet their balls, balls on God's law, then how will we share eternity with men like this if we don't bet our balls on the law of God like they did? Listen to Deuteronomy 32, 45 through 47. When Moses finished reciting all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. By them, you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Now, when you are pressed between allegiance to either the king of your locality or the king of the universe, you need to be able to bet your balls on what the word says, or you really don't have any. You guys getting a hold of that tonight? The word is everything. And don't get lost in in a funny homiletic. This is very serious, especially for the young men as you're growing up, that the word is sufficient for you and that you don't need to go to any kind of outside source because the word is enough. When you are threatened with the seduction or destruction dilemma of assimilation, bet your balls on what the word says because if you don't, you really don't have any. This is how we live faithfully in our historical context as these noble, royal Jewish youths did in their own context. It seems best that we end in 2 Peter 1. Verse 3 and 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Thanks, women, to tell you this evening as a collective body that he has given us everything needed for life and godliness. We're learning to hold fast to it. Learning to grab a hold of the days that we live in and recognize the call of God on our lives. Verse 4. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Israel is the one that was called to be the prince with God. But through these great and precious promises, we have been allowed to participate in their promise. We've been grafted in with that new divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. The word escape, the corruption here, 
because who's going to captivity, who's going to sword? It's already set. We're not being pulled out of Babylon. Like what we covered in Esther the other night. We don't need the edict for destruction to pass. We have been given what we need to participate in a life of godliness. Amen. His precious promises have been given to us. Yeah. Time that we learn to hold fast to the word of God in our homes, in our workplaces, as one collective body in whatever government, world, or life we live in. That we stand together following the model that was set before us yeah. in our historical context. Amen. It's not machismo. It's not macho bravado. It's not a desire to simply pull an earthy saying into a Bible study. The truth is, is you all know me and I know you. And we know how you talk in your homes. I'm not at all concerned about talking about showing some balls. And I'm not because Hezekiah, he is a descendant of David. And he heard these very words and he figured it was good because it wouldn't affect him in his lifetime. Even though it affected his sons after him. Whether these four Hebrew youths stayed physically intact or not, I know that they showed a great deal of what we would colloquially call balls. Come on now. I know for sure that Esther was born without them. But when she said, if I die, I die, I'm going to the king. She yeah. showed some spiritual chutzpah, That's right. and in Texas we would say she has balls. Yeah. What we're praying for is that we not be a church without balls. Yeah. Come on. That even if we were made eunuchs, that we would be unique in this world because we stand on the promises of yeah. our God, empowered by the Spirit of our God. Amen. This is not a statement about gender. It's a statement about sonship. I belong to the King of Kings and I will not bow to seduction or destruction through assimilation. I encourage you to stand to your feet as the pastors close this message. Say this bit. Psalm 119, verse 97. Well, wasn't that a good word tonight, church? Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's one thing to use a colloquialism that says you can bet your balls on it. It's another thing when you actually have to do so. Yeah. You can... And must bet your balls on what the word says. You must. Psalm 119 verse 97 says this. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate it. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. Gone are the days where we could say that we love the word of God without actually having to bet our balls on it. Come on now. 
Gone are the days that you can tell us how much you really love the word of God and it not be seen in the difficulty of the actions that you are willing to endure. I have more understanding than the elders of my day, not the elders in this house, but the elders around us, because we obey his precepts. Go on to the next one. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that, and because I obey your word, I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. See, it's one thing to say I love your word. It's another thing to say I will not depart from what you've taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. They are sweeter than honey to my mouth because I gain understanding from your precepts. And part of us loving the word is that we hate every wrong path. This has to be the cry of every man and every woman in this house. Not just saying we love the word. Any mediocre Christian knows that they should say that. We're men and women in this room who are going to live right in our historical context as we see the example from our Jewish noble brothers, these youth that did it in their youth. In their youth they stood. How much more should we here in this room do this, including hating every wrong path because we love and obey his word? Amen. Come on, man. You know what, saints? We're... We're beneficiaries of men and women in the word and the history of the real living church of God that have bet their balls on it. They've given their lives for what we glean from tonight. Put up Ephesians chapter 5 and we'll start in verse 1. Follow God's example. Another translation says, Be therefore imitators of God as dearly loved children. Man, what an example we have before us in the word that we studied tonight. To match the chutzpah of these young men. To summon the courage and stand against the grain of what a world system wants to conform us into. Look how this verse continues on to two and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us oh and it doesn't stop with just that wording and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God man I hear the encouragement is that whatever ten it is of testing that we go through we come out smelling ten times better (laughs) We join that same level of sacrifice that is pleasing to God and helps further the work of God in the generations that imitate us as we imitate Christ and all the men and women of the past. You know, what becomes very glorious very quickly whenever you've made the decision to bet your balls on what the Word of God says, not just saying that you love it, but committing yourself obeying it and applying what you've learned and what you are learning Revelation 13 9 through 10 has the opportunity to come alive to you for the first time let's go to 10 whoever has ears let them hear what the spirit says 
If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. In the past, if you haven't bet your balls on the word of God, then that sounds terrifying. Oh my goodness. Captivity, sword, oh my goodness. What do we learn from Daniel 1 and these men? If captivity is what it looks like, then captivity is where I'm going to go. I've bet my balls on the word of God. I've literally bet everything that I am, and I've bet my generations on what the word of God says. So if it's captivity, glory to God. My authority is in his hands, but I stand for the word of God. If it's for the sword, if I'm destined for it, praise God and glorify his name. Because his word is going to be my dying action. And if he wants me to live, that's great. But if he wants me to die... That's great, too, because it's glory for him. That passage comes alive in us when we make the decision to say, I bet it, my decision is made and my lot has been cast. And I stand with God's word and with his people. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's saints. I know you. I know that your patient endurance and your faithfulness on that day It will be there, and it will be strong. And it will be something that will glorify our king, and we will glory in it for the rest of eternity. We're going to pray together. We're going to pray because it's appropriate and right to do so. You've seen the example of four Hebrew noble youth that should do much more than just inspire you. I seem to think of it teaching that we just recently did on the Hebrew word mishneh, the concept of us being a copy of these men. They literally had to bet their balls on it, and this is going to be a church full of people who will do the same. Let's pray. Mighty God, we thank you for your example. We thank you for your word that teaches us how to live in our historical context. Lord, may we be a people that do much more than just say we love you, but we want to demonstrate it. We want to be tested. We invite your testing, Lord, because we want to be those who follow your word, who love your word by following it, and therefore show through our obedience that we love, that we revere you as the king of all, as the king over all. Lord, we thank you for your people Israel and what an example they are to us. Lord, may we become copies of the righteousness of your people. Lord, build this into these people here in this room, into LCM and into the One Association churches. We love you and we honor you above all. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.